Welcome to the new podcast, Leading Minds, expert voices from the College of Medicine, Nursing and Health Sciences at NUI Galway. My name is Jonathan McRae. Uh, the aim of the college is to improve patient outcome and explore healthcare. And really excited to uh, speak with the panel today about cardiology, where it's come from and where it's going to in the future. We have a fantastic panel joining us. They are uh, Professor William Wines, Professor Patrick Sarides, and Professor David Wood, all of whom are global change makers in their own specialisms. And they cover the whole research spectrum from intervention to um, prevention to rehabilitation. So really looking forward to hearing this discussion, all of them professors here at NUI Galway. Uh, so William, perhaps we might start with you, if that's okay. And um, this figure always bamboozles me, the idea that over a third of all deaths in the EU are as a result of heart disease. And many of these are uh, as a result of events like uh, cardiac arrests and heart attacks. I'm wondering you might, if you might tell us a little bit about your research and, and what causes these sort of events. Yes, sure. Um, I actually looked up the numbers for, for Ireland and um, they're, you know, they're pretty, pretty impressive uh, for male. Um, we have 700 deaths from cardiovascular disease per 100,000, which means number 13 uh, among all countries in the world. And for ladies, the figure is a bit lower, but still very significant, 420 for 100,000. So we're talking about um, an ubiquitous disease um, that is characterized by the accumulation of what we call plaque, which is basically thickening of the vessel walls. And when there is a disruption of that plaque, that leads to an acute event. That can be acute chest pain with an infarction or impending infarction. It can be an acute coronary syndrome, all of which need emergency hospitalization. And so trying to prevent these acute events is, I think, one of the major unmet needs in cardiovascular disease today. So this has been the focus of my research since I joined NY Galway in uh, 2000, uh, in 2016, actually, September 2016. So tell me a little bit more about your research, William. What exactly do you specialize in? And, and tell me a little bit about the, the medical devices, how they might help us prevent and, and monitor things like heart disease. Yeah, you, you use exactly the two right words, uh, monitor and prevent. Um, I'm actually focusing on the high-risk uh, patients. Now, who's a high-risk? A person who had an event already, plus a very large number of healthy carriers of what we call dangerous plaque that can disrupt when the wrong trigger appears. And the triggers, the most important ones that I'm focusing on are high blood pressure, high pressure in the arterial circulation, but also in the coronary circulation. And the second trigger is stress, because emotional stress can trigger an acute event in patients or subjects who happen to carry those plaques. And so by, by monitoring very carefully changes in blood pressure, we hope to be able to identify uh, patients who are at high risk of fracturing, disrupting one of those plaques, which then leads to occlusion of that particular vessel. And if nothing is done about it, 
the heart that depends in terms of blood, blood supply and oxygen from that vessel, that piece of the heart might actually die. So we're using sensors for that purpose. We all know how blood pressure is being measured once in a while using the cuff. We're trying to develop sensors, wearable or very small implantable sensors that could measure this continuously in an unobtrusive way, send it to the cloud and this be recorded um, for, for monitoring over time. Uh, the other trigger that we're trying to measure is stress. And we're talking about accumulating data, lots of data in the same patient. So big data in, in a way, which is, you know, everybody talks about. We're accumulating big data in one person so that we can identify the moment when there is a risk for one of those plaques to, to rupture. The other aspect is to monitor biochemicals. I mean, these are, these are substances that can be measured by a blood test. And some of them are indicative of either suffering of the myocardium. These are the enzymes like, or proteins like uh, a troponin. And we, if we, we want to measure those continuously on a daily basis, typically this would be measured when the patient comes in acutely with some symptoms. But nothing is done when people live their normal life on an ambulatory basis. So using these um, biochemicals, just like patients with diabetes measure their glucose, we, we hope to be able to monitor signs of either heart suffering, damage, and other, other markers that, for instance, are telling us about uh, heart failure. They're called uh, anti-proBNPs. These are also proteins that are secreted by the right atrium. And when the level increases in blood, it's a sign of an exacerbation of heart failure. So we're focusing on high-risk patients and by measuring a number of key biomarkers or triggers of acute events, we hope to be able to prevent them. That's the focus of my work. It's, it's interesting what you talk about because, of course, this wouldn't have been possible without the miniaturization of sensors, the miniaturization of, of technology, the idea of constantly monitoring a patient uh, 10 or 15 years ago for blood pressure and stress and, and even biomarkers in the blood, which it was absolute um, sci-fi. But I don't know if you remember the cartoon, The Jetsons. Um, in this, the, the, there was an episode in which the dad who lives in the future uh, got a call from his doctor to say, um, you better get to the hospital. And uh, George Jetson said, why? And uh, the doctor says, you're about to have a heart attack. Um, and that seemed so so crazy at the time, but it seems like we're getting closer to this idea of being able to sense what's happening in the blood in, in the body, uh, and do something about it before that event happens. Is is that something that is theoretically possible now, or is that what you're working towards? Yeah, that's what we're trying to achieve. I mean, the, the two key words. Um, one is personalized care. So this would be in the first place. Um, an option for super high risk patients. Yeah. And the second is miniaturization, as you said. But that's the story of our life because, as an interventional cardiologist, what we've been trying to do is to reach the site of treatment via a friendly endovascular route using actually mini access, minimal access. So that was requesting 
miniaturization of the stents and devices that are used. So same is true for the sensors. Yeah, I, I, I want to talk a little bit more about that technology, but um, uh, Patrick, let's go to you because um, talking about acute events, when someone arrives in the lab, um, knowing what's going on in the body is extremely important. And you're doing some amazing work in imaging. I'd love if you maybe use that as an introduction to some of the other projects that you're also working on. But uh, talk to me about how we used to image these patients and, and how we're hoping to change that. It's, it's true that um, everything started by recent onset of angina. Okay, you, you have chest pain. And then you see a doctor in the hospital or uh, not in the hospital. And the first thing you do, you make an interview of that individual. When the pain starts, how much, etc. The second aspect is that you look at the risk of this individual, but then came the critical moment, you make an electrocardiogram. And if you see on this electrocardiogram an ST elevation, you rush to the cat lab. And that's the field of uh, primary intervention for acute myocardial infarction. Now, let's say that you don't see anything on the electrocardiogram and the troponin is positive or negative, but uh, what you start to do, you enter the field of non-invasive testing. And it might be exercise testing. It might be dobutamine stress. It might be... MRI with hyperemia, it might be PET spectalium, name it. And all these tests have a certain positivity, sensitivity, specificity. And then as a physician, you discuss that with the patient, you start to treat him, giving aspirin, beta blocker, things for the symptoms, but you are uncertain, okay? You are uncertain and then for prognostic reason, because of her sensitivities, at some point you move to the cat lab. And in the cat lab, you have to make the stick in the groin or the stick in the uh, wrist. And you shoot the angiography multiple times. And then uh, you do an ad hoc intervention, which is not very well prepared. And which is basically based on your visual uh, assessment of the lesion. So that's something we want to replace. That's, that's the vision, the pathway of the past. And we have a certain vision of the future where the non-invasive imaging will be used as a one-stop shop, okay? You go a multi-slide CT scan and you get the anatomy, you get the wall motion, you get the ejection fraction, you get the calcification, you get all kind of score, and you can at that stage already discuss with the surgeon or with your colleague, is that a surgical case? Is that is the disease very clear? Because you have also a functional component, which is called FFRCT, fractional flow reserve, okay, ratio. So with that information, you can now plan not only make a decision-making between pharma treatment, surgery, or PCI, but you can plan your procedure, okay? And, and you know that the next day, not in a cat lab, but in an interventional suite, 
you know exactly in which projection you have to work. You know what you have to prepare. If there is a lot of calcium, maybe we need some rotational atherectomy and so. So the quality of the medicine is everything in the planning. You may, may ask a colleague, which is a more expert in uh, total occlusion. That, that's the future, the multi-slide CT scan. Now, what is interesting is NICE, which is, uh, you know, cost-effective, uh, excellent medicine in UK, has at, uh, in 2017 promoted the concept that the multi-slide CT scan with functional assessment by FFR-CT should be the first line of diagnostic. And they said, they calculate that theoretically you can spare 240 pounds per patient by avoiding a treatment or suppressing some other test. Because I forgot to tell you that only 30% of the ad hoc uh, intervention in 60% of the case either the coronary artery were pristine and you did that for nothing or even worse you have what we call NOCA, non-obstructive coronary artery disease. It's too early for PCI, it's too early for bypass surgery. You need prevention because they are dangerous patients. It has all these bumps in the coronary artery that William was alluding to which are these vulnerable plaque, not flow limiting but to could rupture. So that's the general plan. So um, this multi-slice CT scanning, it, it basically cuts down on cost, cuts down on exploratory um, interventions and gives you an overview of everything that's going on in the heart. Is there a new technology that you require to, to build this sort of imaging or is it a matter of compositing images that you can already take? Why are we not already doing this? No, I mean, it's, it's available. And of course, it's, uh, the improvement is uh, ev every year, every day, there are improvement in that technology. But it's something that you can implement. And if you look in UK between 2017 and 2021, they just make a report. I mentioned the fact that they were calculating that you could reduce spare uh, safe uh, 217 pounds per patient. Now, the report in January showed that it's not 217, it is 354. So that's going to go in the right direction because healthcare, you cannot escalate the cost all the time. We have to be responsible. So I think it's a good, uh, it's a good step in, the, in that direction. Of course, the, the technology will, will improve all the time. The trial that we are doing is unique in the world. It is what we call a first in man. Uh, the name of the trial was found by William. He called that fast-track cabbage, fast-track surgery. And the concept is that you don't do any more cineangiography. You do a multi-slice CT scan. You analyze everything, and that's what we do in the Corrib lab here in Galway. And then we dispatch the result to the surgeon in Europe, in Italy, in Germany, uh, in Belgium. And you say, yes, this is a patient for surgery and you have to put a bypass here and there and there. And when you think about that, they have the most complicated case, the case with left main, the, the case with three vessel disease. 
And if the surgeon, and they do, they do, accept the guidance of the multi-slide CT scan to operate this patient, the most complicated, we, interventional cardiologists, can do the one vessel, the two vessel, flow-limiting lesion. We have to do that before the cat lab. We don't call that cat lab, we call that interventional suite. Because today, you know, you have the CTO, the bifurcation, the aortic valve, the mitral valve, all these kind of activities which need fluoroscopy and needs a lot of time. So it is very essential in terms of cost effectiveness for two reasons, to do that via the multi-slice CT scan non-invasive. And at the bottom of the pyramid of the activity for the multi-slice CT scan, the top is for the surgeon, the bottom, you do a multi-slice CT scan and your coronary artery are pristine, fine, rule out, you can go on. Then there is this layer of NOCA, that's the patient we have to treat. And we are planning in this patient the use of messenger RNA to block the PCSK9. And the PCSK9 is something very important for the LDL receptors, you know, the, the fact that the liver clean uh, the LDL cholesterol in blood. So that's the NOCA, that's the target for primary prevention. And then in between the surgeon and the NOCA, you have the interventional cardiologist with one and two vessel disease. That's the vision, the pyramid. It's very um, promising stuff. And um, it sounds almost like a very complicated triage in, in a way. Um, but obviously, ideally, we wouldn't have any patients in our uh, hospitals uh, presenting for heart disease because um, we had interacted and inter intervened before that. And I'm talking, of course, of preventative medicine, which is uh, something you've dedicated your life to, uh, David. Um, can you tell me a little bit about why you got into preventative um, medicine and uh, what sort of interventions are there to, to improve outcome when we talk about these incredible figures of, of deaths? Uh, as a result of heart disease? Well, I think to begin with, um, uh, we should understand that um, as Salim Youssef described in his inter-heart study across 52 countries, um, the explanation for coronary artery disease, the causes uh, of coronary artery disease are summarized by nine risk factors, they explain 90% of the population attributable risk. And those include aspects of lifestyle, the biological risk factors such as hypertension and dyslipidemia and diabetes, together with psychosocial factors. And this means that the cause of coronary artery disease is the same worldwide, and it is preventable. But the challenge uh, for the preventive cardiologists uh, is at three levels. The first uh, is for those patients that Patrick and William are describing who have survived that initial ischemic insult um, and who've been revascularized, but still have the disease. The disease is ubiquitous. It is present throughout the arterial tree and therefore we need to address uh, those drivers of atherosclerosis in order to prevent recurrence. And 
in our research at the National Institute for Prevention and Cardiovascular Health, we are conducting an international study called InterAspire across 18 countries drawn from uh, all six WHO regions to really drill down into the risk factor profile of patients who've survived that initial ischemic insult and to look beyond uh, the conventional risk factors uh, that I described earlier and to look at uh, new risk markers, novel uh, biomarkers, in order to better understand and characterize uh, their risk and then develop models of care which can reduce that risk and therefore the chances of a further heart attack or stroke. How um, how precise can you be? Because obviously you're, you're talking about thousands and thousands of patients. Uh, get the, get, you can get an idea of these sort of risk factors, but when it comes to the individual, how important is that um, that preventative uh, intervention uh, when it, when it comes to someone who may have different genes than than was in the profile, a different environment, um, because our our own lives are so individual. Well, risk scoring is absolutely central to the work that all of us uh, are doing because to be able to predict better uh, recurrent events in those who have established disease and much more importantly, the much bigger problem of predicting in the general population amongst asymptomatic individuals, those who are at high risk of developing um, a first uh, major cardiovascular event um, is a real uh, challenge. And uh, the WHO uh, risk prediction charts, uh, of which uh, I was part and published in The Lancet um, in 2019, now make available risk prediction models for every region of the world. But as with all risk prediction, you have to understand that this is based on groups, not the individual. So all we can say to the patient in front of us or to the asymptomatic individual is that the probability of you developing cardiovascular disease over a defined period of time, let's say 10 years, is 20%. That could be tonight or it could be in 10 years time. And it's not necessarily you. It could be somebody else in that group who has the same level of cardiovascular risk. So improving risk prediction is um, a, real, um, a, a, a real challenge in both secondary and primary prevention. When um, you talk about new risk factors, you, you talked about psychosocial factors and lifestyle factors. Genetic, I'm sure, is, is another element as to why people are more um, likely to get one of these um, heart diseases. Have, have we yet identified an, a new risk factor? And will, will AI be uh, very important in doing that? Or, or how do you hope to identify these new risk factors? Well, that's a very... A very interesting question because if you look at uh, the mathematics of uh, risk prediction, um, you will see that actually the conventional risk factors explain the greater part uh, of the ROC curve. And 
the addition of uh, novel biomarkers or indeed imaging modalities adds an independent uh, contribution to that risk prediction, but it is relatively small. So, of course, we can improve risk prediction by using uh, novel biomarkers. We can improve risk prediction uh, by imaging. But as we add more and more uh, layers of uh, risk assessment with more and more sophisticated uh, technologies, the more challenging this becomes in population screening. Good for the individual, but not good for populations as a whole. And that's why the WHO risk prediction charts rely heavily on the conventional risk factors, but at an individual level for the physician, for the cardiologist or the general practitioner, they could of course order these additional tests and better characterize the individual's risk. Is there a big variability in, in um, an approach to prevention? And are, are there things that are quite exciting that are happening elsewhere that we could be doing? Well, there is, um, there is huge variability in, um, uh, in approaches to prevention. And uh, even in high-income countries, um, we still fall well below the standards, as we have demonstrated many times over in our Euroaspire studies. We fall well below the standards set in the guidelines in terms of uh, patient uh, management. And the challenge is even greater in middle um, and in low income countries, which actually is where most of the deaths from cardiovascular disease currently occur. And we are seeing an epidemiological transition with falling mortality rates in high income countries, but growing mortality rates in middle and low income countries. And that that is a, a significant challenge for the future. Speaking about innovation, Apple is, is one of those um, companies really that we identify as, as always looking to uh, try new approaches with technology and break boundaries. Um, Patrick, can you tell us a little bit about your uh, approach to innovation when it comes to medicine? Your um, fast track trial, which you, you talked about, is just one of, I believe, 13 different uh, approaches to uh, innovation that you're working on in your lab. Maybe you might uh, talk to me about how that works and, um, and and some of the projects that you're working on. Yeah, I, I describe what I call the pyramid of coronary artery disease. So you have, we have already discussed uh, the fast track. I mean, uh, uh, basically the trial is um, has include 25% uh, of the patient and don't forget that the surgeon has always the option to say no. The multi-slice CT scan information is not good enough. I want to see the real things, the cine angiography, the invasive angiography. That's the feasibility phase, okay? And then to be, to be sure that we don't do something wrong, we have a safety phase. So 30 days after the surgery, the patient get a second multi-slice CT scan to control all the bypass. Did they put the bypass in the right place uh, behind the, the stenotic lesion and so. So, so far it goes very well because the feasibility has been 100%, what we were not expecting. We were expecting 75%. And, and the control, the safety looks also 
very good. But we have to complete completely that. Uh, we have to complete that trial uh, to see if it is uh, applicable uh, to more than a few uh, top surgical centers. That's the top of the pyramid. Now, the second interest that I have, that we have, is of course we mentioned that the NOCA, the non-obstructive coronary disease. That's really a killer. It's a big paradox. I mean, with uh, uh, the central unit in Monzino and Professor uh, Daniele Andreini, we have followed for seven years these patients who have not even encroachment of the lumen. The plaque is there. 40% of plaque is there. You know, after 40%, you got the encroachment, the lumen. We have take this patient and follow them. Now, at eight years, only 76% were even free. So that's really a target. The same number that the patient who has a stenotic lesion flow limiting. So that's really was for me a, a major target because I cannot, uh, the surgeon cannot treat it. Uh, the interventional cardiologist cannot treat it. So that's basically the field of uh, David Wood. Now, what is uh, fantastic, I mean, the people don't realize that, that the COVID has introduced something amazing. I think we will remember the COVID, not for the catastrophe, but for the good things. Do you realize that almost million of people, even billion of people receive now a piece of messenger RNA subcutaneous and then are protect against the virus. So you must realize you have a small microsphere of lipid with a piece of uh, messenger RNA. You put that subcutaneously, subcutaneously, and it goes up to the liver, get integrated in the liver, uh, in the case of PCSK9, uh, sorry, I make a short, the PCSK, block the PCSK9 so that the liver has better receptor in its surface, in this in this cell, and can clean the LDL cholesterol from uh, from your blood. So I think the decade we will see a lot of messenger RNA therapy, microRNA. You know the the decade before all the drug was called MAB, monoclonal antibody. Now, many, many of the drugs will be microRNA, and the COVID has promoted that. But before the COVID, there was already one drug uh, in the possession of Novartis in Clisteron. And these people are now targeting primary prevention. And in, with Oxford and Sir Rory Collins, they want to include 40,000 patients and include kids between 12 and 18 which has the, the bad genomic, who have uh, uh, familial uh, cholesterolemia and include in this, uh, in this trial. I think it's phenomenal. I, I think it's so exciting. And, you know, two subcutaneous injection made by the GP, you will have an adherence, phenomenal adherence. You know, if you have to take your statin every day, you can't forget it, okay? But to have two subcutaneous injections per year by the GP, that is going to have an impact. What I like very much in prevention, you know, an, an interventional cardiologist aging, 
goes in prevention. That's very clear. So, so what I like also very much, and, and David uh, didn't allude to, uh, is with my friend Valentin Furster, what he has done uh, for the kids between three and six years, you know. He used, he start the prevention at that time. If you take a kid of three to six years and tell you that uh, smoking is bad, drug is bad, uh, too much lipid, too much meat is bad, it, it creates something. So Valentin Furster has a randomized school where uh, there was an extra education for the kids and a normal education. And you cannot judge the result because primary prevention, you have to wait. But the very interesting things is that you use uh, Sesame Street, Sesame Street to, to disseminate that, that concept. And he tried that in Bolivia, he tried that in the Bronx and the Queens, and he tried that in Madrid. And now he told me the other day that he takes this kid that he has educated between three and five years. And now five years later, he takes the same kids. And he said to talk again about prevention is extremely effective in these kids. They have had the concept at a very young age. And now you are coming back at the age of 10 and that trigger again the same reflex. So I'm a believer that... Uh, um, I would not say that surgery and PCI will disappear, no, no, but uh, we go in that direction, clearly. We go in that direction, molecular biology, genomic, identify, non-invasive imaging for the phenotype of the disease and prevention, 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 yeah. That sounds really exciting, um, but there's, there's sort of two ideas there to, to kind of toss around, David. Um, when we talk about uh, prevention, I mean, those sort of really early interventions uh, obviously hopefully will have some sort of impact. You might talk about about what that looks like and whether or not you feel they're hopeful, but also the idea that uh, essentially we might uh, um, make people immune uh, by using these new mRNA um, uh, uh, treatments that, that are becoming more popular, not just in cardiology, but in, in lots of other specialties as well. So can you talk a little bit about, about both of those, those really early preventions and then the, the, possibly the future of, of getting uh, two jobs and, and, and you're done? Well, uh, Valentin Fuster's work is uh, absolutely inspirational with, with children. Um, uh, and, uh, and that is, is the future, primordial prevention at, at the level of children and young people. But can I just comment on COVID-19, this catastrophe uh, global catastrophe, both uh, in medical terms and social and economic terms. Um, because if you want um, a compelling argument for prevention, as Michael Bloomberg said recently, and he's the WHO global ambassador for non-communicable diseases, um, the people who are admitted to hospital, the people who are being ventilated in ITU, the people who are dying, uh, from COVID-19 are the people with comorbidities, with heart attacks, with strokes, with hypertension, with obesity, with diabetes. And you could not have a, a more compelling argument for uh, prevention than that. But, but COVID-19 has, I think, brought about some dramatic changes in our thinking about how we deliver 
care. Um, so that virtual consultations um, have become at least the norm uh, in, uh, in my country, um, uh, replacing the traditional outpatient clinic consultation with the cardiologist armed with all of the um, uh, investigations, uh, the patient medical record, and a telephone or WhatsApp. Um, I think this new way of delivering care, and that is what we are currently developing uh, at the Institute, the intercept model for preventive cardiology using a customized application, which is made available to the patient and family uh, on their iPhone or Android, uh, is a very different way of thinking about how we can reduce uh, cardiovascular risk. So the pandemic has had terrible uh, consequences for, for every country, but actually has brought about innovation at the same time, and innovation which I think is here to stay for cardiology. Yeah, um, I, I think a lot of things had to happen very quickly when it came to COVID and some of them were unfortunate um, and maybe um, makeshift and then others forced um, some institutions into the 21st century. So th there's definitely, and also approaches, how we think about health, um, how we value science, all of these things changed quite dramatically during COVID. Um, I did want to hear from you, though, with regards to what Patrick was talking about in terms of uh, intervening with with mRNA. Is that is that something that's um, on the on the horizon for you? Do you think that that is is, is possible in, in terms of intervening with sort of preventative um, injections to reduce risk of heart disease later? Oh, without a doubt. I mean, the Novartis drug in glycerin. Um, and we we wait to see the results of the um, of the phase three uh, trials um, is an extremely promising approach to prevention for the reasons that Patrick gave compliance or adherence uh, with cardioprotective medications uh, is poor uh, among many patients and approximately half of all patients prescribed a statin. Uh, even though they have coronary artery disease, stop taking their medication. The, the best example I ever read was Bill Clinton. Um, and he was prescribed a statin to reduce his cardiovascular risk. His cholesterol level fell and he thought the job was done and he stopped taking his statin. Um, so compliance with medications is a real uh, problem and an alternative, namely uh, an injection every six months, will ensure absolute uh, compliance if the patient comes forward mm. for the injection and will therefore give sustained reduction in cardiovascular risk. This is um, a new vehicle for prevention. Yeah, and, and um, I, I know that statistic and it, it just, it's mad, isn't it? The idea that you've had a heart attack, this will stop you having another heart attack. All you need to do is take one or two of these pills a day and that won't happen to you again. And people still dramatically, a large number of people just do not um, sign up to that, that prescription for some reason. Um, I'd like to hear finally from, from each of you um, a, a, about the importance of being at NUI Galway, how and why you were lured here and why it's good to be here for your research. 
uh, perhaps a little bit about your your work and collaboration with other uh, departments and other professors uh, within cardiology and medicine, and also th the fact that Ireland is a fantastic place for uh, medical technology research. So maybe we might start with you, Patrick. Um, why is NUI Galway a good place for this? Yeah, I mean, um, obviously, it's uh, the nickname of Galway is the Silicon Valley of Europe because you have a huge uh, brain park. Uh, all the uh, med tech is uh, around in the brain park. So that's, that's one point which is uh, very attractive. Now, to come back to the uh, COVID, I want to tell you an anecdote because it will show you the not only the attraction of Galway, but how Galway can interact with the COVID and with the international community. And the anecdote is the following. We had the two Chinese fellow, Charlie Gao and uh, Wu Tao Wang. And when the, the things get serious in, uh, in China, January, uh, the end of January was clear that the pandemia was coming. They decided to leave Galway because they were here in Galway as fellows. They had followers from uh, Rotterdam and to go back to their country. And they volunteered to work in these uh, Wuhan hospital, you remember that? That hospital was built in three weeks. And they start to work on February the 2nd, and they saw only COVID patients all the time. So they called me and I said uh, on uh, April the 1st, and they say, could you help us to write a manuscript about uh, the COVID? We believe that hypertension is very bad. And I said, okay, you have the data? Yes, we have collected the data from February the 2nd to April the 1st. So I uh, get in contact with William, I get in contact with uh, Bill McAvoy. Uh, we got the data, we, we helped to write the manuscript, and there was two important pieces of information. Yes, hypertension was very bad for somebody who get COVID. But the second information was even more important. People who are taking angiotensin II inhibitors, because there are some similitude between the receptors for the COVID virus and for the angiotensin II inhibitors, people said you have maybe to stop the inhibitor of angiotensin II. And we look in this data and it was not the case it was maybe even somewhat uh, protecting. So we put a manuscript very quickly for the European Heart Journal and everybody has helped. It was immediately accepted as a fast track with the contribution of Galway and the contribution of uh, our Chinese fellow. It was published very quickly in the European Heart Journal because it was hot news, very important for the community. And it was confirmed many, many times around the world. And that paper has, was a big success for Galway. It was in, the, I don't know, Irish News, whatever, the, the journal. And the Altmetrix, which is uh, calculating how much uh, a scientific paper is important for the community, you know, uh, Twitter and also, I think after three days was 1400 uh, score, 
which we have never seen before. So that show you the international connection with Galway, uh, the prevention, because Professor uh, McAvoy is working in prevention. We even at that time make a protocol for a grant about testing different uh, uh, anti-diuretic drugs. Unfortunately, the grant was uh, not approved with the idea that Galway is a too small place. And by the way, the disease will disappear. Now, they forgot that there was a second wave and a third wave. So we could have done the, the protocol and, and tested that in Galway. So that's my uh, uh, impact of connection with the uh, COVID. But what is important is that you must realize that in the lab behind me, there are uh, five Chinese, five Japanese uh, people from, from Italy, uh, five people from Egypt. That, that show now today the attraction of this place. Uh, you were asking what is attracting Galway. It's of course some personality like David Wood and William Wentz and many others. Uh, but certainly, uh, uh, it is on, on the international map, uh, Galway is there. Well, my association with Galway goes back more than a decade with uh, Cree, the heart and stroke uh, charity. Um, and I then had the privilege of being awarded an adjunct professorship in preventive cardiology by NUIG. But what was really exciting was the creation of this National Institute for Prevention and Cardiovascular Health, uh, led by uh, Professor Bill uh, McAvoy. The, uh, Tim O'Brien recruited him from, uh, from Johns uh, Hopkins, and he is an excellent leader. And so I was uh, very pleased to have the opportunity to join and support him in his bid to build a research and educational agenda in preventive cardiology. Indeed, my whole team from Imperial College is now in, in Galway. So, so together we span the spectrum from prevention to intervention and in a very beautiful part of the world. Mm. Uh, William, you get the final word. What is, it, what is, is important? Oh, I, may I have the final word? Just because I have to say something to William, so I cannot say after William, okay? So I, I was in Singapore, I was in Singapore, and I got an email of William Wayne's on the 6th of July, 2019. And he said, Patrick, would you be interested to come in Galway to build up a core lab? Because they have a lot of data but they are not analyzing and they are not analyzing data, not only from Galway, but internationally. And it, it's a fatal attraction. It's a fatal attraction because you must realize that he's a little bit younger than me. Doesn't look like that, but he's a little bit younger than me by four or five years. And I was already a resident, a resident uh, very established in Rotterdam when he joined us to learn the early phase of uh, PCI. So we worked together between, I think, 1980 and 1983. I was a little bit his boss. He was a little bit in training. After that, he went to Los Angeles. So when I talk about fatal attraction, you understand, after 40 years to come back to the same partner, 
to build them something in Galway was unique. Now you may have the last word. William, you have to say something nice about Patrick now, I believe. Yeah, for sure. There is one movie that I, I didn't see that I have to try and, and watch maybe on Netflix. Uh, Fatal Attraction, I have not seen it. But uh, <laughs> just, you know, seriously, um, uh, you know, for, for a person at, at, my, uh, at my level of career and interest in, in intervention and having a broader impact, uh, having the opportunity to join what is called the uh, Galway and, and Irish ecosystem in, is, is just a unique opportunity. And of course, I'm, I'm immensely thankful to Science Foundation Ireland uh, for, for giving me this opportunity to, to um, reunite with, with my, my former mentor, but and, and beyond that, um, joining all the uh, colleagues uh, that are interested in, in innovation and research, Curam, uh, BioInnovate, Insight, Translational uh, Device Lab. I mean, so many opportunities for collaboration, innovation uh, that you can dream of. Um, so I couldn't think of a, of a better uh, a cherry on, uh, on the cake of my career to, to use a funny word, but if you know my background, I come from a bakery and a pastry family. So cakes are very important for us. <laughs> Probably I should do this again because it makes, it's absolute nonsense. Yeah. But I said, you know, maybe I should record this again. But Patrick destabilized me with his personal touching comments. No, you expressed it very well, William. Well, <laughs> well um, thank you. Thank you so much to our panel, uh, Professor Surreys, Professor Wines, and Professor Wood. Uh, and thank you for watching. If you'd like to know more about the research that's been discussed here, uh, you can go to uh, nenuigolway.ie forward slash CMNHS. Uh, thank you for watching. I hope to see you on the next episode. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are. We'll see you again soon.